We um, are just finished a month-long series of uh, celebrating God's faithfulness to our church and yet still greater. The beautiful thing is that now we are 40 years old and we've been talking about, come on, we can give it up. We're a 40-year-old church. And the whole series we've been speaking about is yet still greater. And in the point now where we're at, we are in the greater of yet still greater. We're in the part that we have been talking about for the last year now. And so I want our faith, I want our expectation of what God's going to do to meet the place that we've been talking about for a year. Because sometimes it can be really easy to come in church and play church, right? You come in and you say, oh yeah, I'll agree with it every single week, but in the daily rhythms of my life, I don't really walk it out. No, now it's time for us to walk it out. We've been saying God's going to do yet still greater. Now it's 40 years. Now we're in the greater. So bring your faith to this year, to this season of our church, to this place where you're sitting in and say, I believe that God is going to do something here right where I stand, right in my family, in my work, in my soul. If I've never been close to God, I believe I'm going to get closer to God. If my family is still as messed up as I can imagine, I believe that they're going to get closer to God. I believe that God's going to do a miracle in my life. I'm not even in my passage yet and I'm already preaching. I believe that God is doing a greater thing in our church now than he's ever done before. And I want you to meet us. I want you not just to meet us, but to meet God with your faith. Meet him at that place. Bring your faith to church. Bring your faith to small group. Bring your faith to your workplace. And see what God would do. See what the greater means for you. We're going to be in Psalm chapter 73. We are actually uh, going back to a series. So we were in Yet Still Greater. Um, And if you've been here for a little bit, we are in a series called But God. A series talking about what happens when God intervenes into your life. And we really felt like that series resonated with our church and we just weren't quite ready to let go of it yet. So we're right back in the but God this morning. We're going to be in Psalm chapter 73, verse 21 through 26. Psalm chapter 73, verse 21 through 26. And it says this. When my soul was embittered, And when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast towards you. Probably not the most encouraging way to start off Sunday morning. (laughs) But verse 23, nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand and you guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? There is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. What I want to title this message for the next few minutes that we're together is, but God, my portion. I want to speak about three things this morning. One, I want to speak about my flesh and heart. Two, I want to speak about his strength. And three, I want to speak about my portion. Would you pray with me for a minute? Lord, we love you. And we're lifting up the name of Jesus in this place. God, we're acknowledging your presence that you have chosen to be with us this morning. 
God, your manifest presence is here because you're faithful to your word. And you told us that when we gather in your name, you, the very presence of God, will be here with us. And so we welcome you into this place, King. We affirm the authority that you have over our lives. And we say that you are Lord, you have been Lord, and you will always be Lord of this church and of this heart. Lord, if you're not glorified in any other place, be glorified in this place. And if you're not glorified in any other heart, be glorified in this heart. Father, we love you so much. And more importantly, you love us. Holy Spirit, empower us to live, look, and love more like Jesus today than we did yesterday. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. But God, my portion. See, what happens when God intervenes is the question that we've been asking in this whole series. And Oftentimes, we want God to intervene in the miraculous, but sometimes I've realized that God wants to intervene not just in the miraculous, but in your mindset. And oftentimes, the mindset change is a miraculous change. You want God to change all that's around you, and God wants to change everything within you. God is looking for a mindset change in you. And he's changing the mind of Asaph. You might be saying, well, who is Asaph? Well, when you look at the Psalms, a lot of us consider that the Psalms were written probably by like one guy. And the guy's name is David, King David, the worshiper, the shepherd king, that guy, the guy with David and Goliath, that guy. And yes, many of the Psalms were written by David, but did you know that some of them weren't? And this one specifically was written by this man named Asaph. Now, Asaph wrote about 12 of the Psalms. He was a man who uh, was actually established and he was uh, directed to be one of the lead worshipers in all of Israel. So he uh, was born from this tribe, a descendant of Levi, one of the 12 tribes of Israel. And Levi, all of his descendants were Levites. And Levites were known to be the worshipers or the priests. And so when everybody who was from the the lineage of Levi got a special opportunity to minister specifically to the heart of the Lord. Asaph was one of those men. He was uh, a worshiper. He was also a prophet. And so when you imagine Asaph, I want you to imagine your favorite worship leader. And that's who he is. He was the guy who was in charge of worshiping and ministering when the Ark of the Covenant was brought to Israel and he was ministering at the tabernacle. He was actually the guy who was commissioned by, uh, uh, I guess it was Solomon, to uh, 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 start worship once the temple had been built. So he was the guy, him and this man named Haman were the two top tier guys, were the lead worshipers in the temple of the Lord. And Asaph comes... And he's actually, as he's in charge of worship, he ends up writing 12 of the Psalms that we know and we love today, including this one, Psalm chapter 73. And Asaph brings up a really interesting question in the whole Psalm. I wish we had time to read it all, but I really, really encourage you to read it, especially if you have sometimes issues with who God blesses and who God doesn't bless. Have you ever been at the place where you're saying you wonder why certain people are blessed and why certain people aren't? That's what Asaph wondered. He had the thought, he said, God, why does it seem like the wicked are prospering more than the righteous? 
Because I look around and I see a bunch of people who aren't following Yahweh, aren't following the Lord, but it seems like their life is way better than the righteous life. And he's getting into this thought and wondering, like, is all of my worship in vain? Have have I been following God for no reason? Because it doesn't seem like the way that I'm living is really as good as the way that they're living. And he's starting to question, God, are you really good to bless those who are righteous and to curse those who are wicked? If you've ever wondered why God blesses certain people or seemingly blesses certain people, Psalm chapter 73 might be the psalm for you. Asaph gets into this argument with God and then he gets into this place where in verse 17, this beautiful moment where um, his mindset changes. He has the miracle of a new mindset. And in verse 17, right before we started reading, it says this, until I went into the sanctuary of God and then I discerned their end. So Asaph has this issue with why wicked people prosper and righteous people aren't. And then he gets to this point where he's arguing mad and upset. He's questioning whether he should continue in this way with God. And then he gets to verse 17. He says, and then I came into the sanctuary of God and everything changed. Man, my soul was embittered towards you. And I was like a beast. I, I didn't even control myself. I was like carnal and, and I was just doing what I felt. I didn't consider God. I just considered myself. And what I'm now realizing is that God, you were not just having those people succeed. It's not that the wicked were succeeding. Truthfully, I discerned that the wicked were slipping. They weren't succeeding. They were actually slipping, but they didn't even know it. And all of a sudden, his criticism of God turns into compassion for them. He says, oh my goodness, their end is destruction. They don't even know where they're going. God has given them mercy to live this way, but there's coming a point where God is actually going to get what's due and the wicked will not prosper at the end of the day. The righteous will. And I only realized this after I came into the sanctuary of the Lord. And now, after I've come in, he got the miracle of a new mindset. He says, my flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. See, God didn't necessarily give him answers, but God did give him perspective. And he speaks about my flesh and my heart may fail. My flesh, that being the carnal uh, uh, part of me that is unsubmitted to God and disobedient, the part of me that just does what I want to do, my flesh leads me to do. And in my heart, the heart is described in this way of, of the desires of you, the very soul of you, the innermost parts of you. The fleshly part of me and the desires part of me. And and he says, my flesh and my heart may fail. The word for fail here really says it has come come to its end. But its end is almost that it's been exhausted and that it's empty. It has nothing left. My flesh, it's empty. My, My heart, it's empty. And I've come to the end of myself. Sometimes it's good to come to the end of yourself. Sometimes it's really good to realize that you aren't enough for you. And culture won't tell you that. The world's not going to tell you that. 
The world will actually more likely encourage you and say to you, you, what you really need is you need to look within yourself. Once, once you look within yourself and you get very introspective, you get really curious and maybe even you're very authentic and genuine about growth or about purpose or about movement in your life. Really, the way to get there is to look inside of here. And as you look throughout scripture and you compare it to what the, uh, uh, you look throughout the world and you compare it to what scripture says, you really realize that that is horrible advice because the answers for me aren't found in me. If I have an issue with my car, I open up the hood not to find the answer, but to find the problem. And when you open up your soul to look for the answer, you're not going to find the answer. What you're going to find is the problem. Now, if you're looking for the answer, if I open up my hood, I might be able to discern the issue, but I need to go take it to the manufacturer to find the answer. And when your soul in the same way is embittered towards God, your flesh and your heart fail, what you don't need to do is you don't need to look deeper within yourself to find the answers to yourself. You need to look inside of yourself to find the problem with yourself. And then you need to look to someone greater than yourself, God, to find the answer to yourself. My flesh and my heart may fail. They're going to fail. They're going to come to an end. I think this is why Paul says in Romans chapter 7, he says, I do what I don't want to do and I don't do what I do want to do. Man, who can save this wretched body? Paul, the apostle Paul, even had an issue with doing things that he didn't want to do. His flesh failed. And even you get to Jeremiah, and Jeremiah teaches us about our heart. And he says in 17.9 that the heart is deceitfully wicked. It's deceptive. He says, who in there, who, in, who can know it? Paul says that I don't do what I want to do, and I do what I don't want to do. Some of us probably relate. And Jeremiah says, my heart is deceitfully wicked. You see, Christians are called to deny our flesh and to question our heart. Deny your flesh. Question your heart. That sounds like the opposite of what culture is going to tell you, which is satisfy your flesh and to follow your heart. If you feel something, you need to do something. Especially if you feel something over and over and over and over again. That's the deep part of you. That's the intimate part of you. You need to listen to your inner self because if you feel it, you should do it. And the scriptures are almost telling us the complete opposite of that. You need to deny your flesh and you need to question your heart. I believe some of us are feel like we are under perpetual attack because we are indulging in that very thing that we need to be interrogating. You're indulging in your heart and you're indulging in your flesh because you've been taught to do that by the world. When in all reality, the scriptures teach you the very opposite. They say, don't indulge, interrogate, question that thing. Wonder if you should actually be living this way, doing that thing, desiring that thing. My flesh and my heart. No, I'm not going to follow my heart. I'm not going to satisfy my flesh. I'm going to question my heart. I'm going to deny my flesh. We have issues because we just constantly take advice from untrustworthy sources. I'm taking advice from my heart. I'm following my flesh. 
I have proven to myself and to many people over and over and over again that I'm not a trustworthy source. And I should not listen to me. And if you're like me, maybe you've lived long enough or you've realized you've been in church long enough to realize I shouldn't listen to me. I'm not a trustworthy source. By heart, even though I think I want what I want, I've realized I don't even really know that I want what I want. My wants change regularly. And I want this right now and I'm probably not going to want it next year. But now I'm going to use everything that I have and everything at my disposal to want what I want now and to get what I want now. And everything in scripture saying, no, question your heart. Deny your flesh. Why? Because your flesh and your heart are going to fail. We have issues because we take advice from untrustworthy sources. I was um, teaching a, like a VBS sports camp years ago when I was a kid here. We would have like vacation Bible school type uh, events in the summers. And um, as a pastor's kid, I don't really think I had a choice to teach it or not. It was kind of like your summer project is you go and you teach VBS, right? And as we were doing this, I actually loved it because I loved sports. And you would have all of these sports that we'd be teaching these kids, me and a couple coaches and the coaches, right? We were like 16 years old, but we were like coaches, right? Because they were like nine years old. And so we were teaching all these kids all these sports. And I remember like the basketball, we got it. Football, we got it. Like Frisbee, we got it. Like those types of sports, I was like, oh, I'm accustomed to those sports. I've played those sports. Those, those are really, really simple for me. But then they wanted me to teach soccer. And the only thing that I knew about soccer in that time is that Beckham could bend it and Europe calls it football. And that's pretty much all I knew. And they were like, yo, teach these nine-year-olds soccer. And I was like, bet I got you. I'll teach them soccer. I don't know what, I don't know. You like kid in the goal and don't use your hands. But that's what I knew. And so after I was teaching these kids soccer, I remember like halfway through, we got into like, how do you kick a soccer ball? And how do you score it in a goal? I didn't know that you weren't supposed to just kick a soccer ball head on with your toes, that you actually had to turn your foot a little bit. And so by the end of my coaching lesson, I realized that we almost had like nine sprained toes and maybe like two broken ones because everyone's just kicking it with their toes instead of kicking it with their foot. You know what I mean? Like you played soccer, you know what I mean? You're not supposed to kick it with your toes or else you'll break your toes. Similarly to me teaching your kids soccer, you shouldn't take advice from untrustworthy sources. You shouldn't follow your heart in the same way you shouldn't let me teach your kids how to play soccer. There's an untrustworthy source at play here. And sometimes we think that just because I'm used to it, just because I like it, just because it's familiar to me, I'm going to follow this source. I'm going to follow my flesh. I'm going to indulge in my heart when in all actuality, you shouldn't indulge in it. You should be interrogating it. My flesh and my heart may fail. Paul says it this way in Philippians 3. He says, for we are the circumcision." Who worship by the spirit of God in the glory of Christ Jesus and put, listen to this, and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself, Paul speaking, have reason to put confidence in the flesh. And if anyone thinks they have reason for the confidence in the flesh, I have more. Now, this is the apostle Paul speaking and he's saying, now, we shouldn't judge, live, or think, or walk by the flesh. And if you think that you should, you definitely shouldn't because I have more confidence. I'm a better follower of the Torah than you are. And so if you think you're good, trust me, I'm better. And if I'm not putting confidence in my flesh, 
And Paul says, I'm putting no confidence there. I need to put confidence in God. I need to put my trust in him, not in me. Your flesh and your heart may fail. God oftentimes will graciously let you be the Lord of your own life so that you will realize that you make a very bad Lord. <laughs> you'll come to the end of yourself and you'll realize, I, I, I thought I knew better and I was very genuine and authentic and intentional and I realized I still failed and I still wasn't enough and I tried my best and I still wasn't good enough. And God will say, perfect, perfect, perfect. Now come to me. Now that you realize that your flesh and your heart aren't good enough, I invite you to come to me. That I've come to my end, but God. That I have failed, but God. That I can't trust my flesh and I shouldn't follow my heart, but God. And if we think about failure, that is probably one of the scariest futures and realities that we can think of in our lives. We think about failure and that's the thing that we are, it's our biggest fear in our life. Failure in your marriage, failure in business, failure as a man, failure as a woman, Failure as a mom and failure as a dad, failure as a husband and failure as a wife, failure in your dreams. It is our biggest fear to fail because probably the failure would might actually confirm what we think about ourselves all along. Our biggest fear is failure. Maybe I'm not really a good dad and this just confirms that I'm not a good dad. Biggest fear is failure. Our flesh and our heart may fail. Why are you telling me on Sunday that my flesh and my heart may fail? I know that my flesh and my heart may fail. And we get to this point where we're saying, man, I think sometimes we're defining ourselves by our own success rate in life. And how successful I believe myself to be is really how successful that I am. And that's why some of your highs are really, really high, but some of your lows are really, really low. It's because you're defining the success of your life by you. And so when you get a promotion, you're better than them. But when you get fired, you're bad. You, you start to take on these things as an identity and you start measuring by you. And I want some people to be free today that you need to understand that you measure by you sometimes. But how many of us are thankful that God doesn't measure by you? He's not using you as a standard for your success. He's using himself as a standard for your success. And that's really great if you're in the kingdom of God and if you're hidden in Christ Jesus. But that's actually kind of terrifying if you're not in Christ. Because he's not measuring you by you. He's measuring you by him. The success rate of your life isn't determined by you. It's determined by him. So when we get into failure, we can realize that in the world, yes, failure affirms all of the fears that I have about myself. But in the kingdom of God, let me tell somebody today that failure isn't final. That you can fail. 
in the kingdom of God and you can still succeed. That, that, that you can come to the end of yourself in the kingdom of God and you can still win. That, that you cannot do what God has called you to do and he can still redeem you. He can still pursue his purpose for your life. You can still have a successful marriage. You can still be generous with your money. You can still get out of that addiction. Your heart and your flesh may fail, but God is the strength of your heart. So you get to a place where you realize in Christ, failure isn't final. God can redeem me and he can still move in spite of me. And now I sit in this place where I'm like, you know what? It's okay. It's okay. I don't have to let my flesh and my heart succeed and win and run my life because I gave my life up to him anyway. And even when I fail, I realize there is still a but God. He's the strength of my heart. His strength. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart. You see, this is what happens when you come into the sanctuary. I was embittered towards you, but then when I came into the sanctuary, I discerned their end. This is what happens when you come into the sanctuary of the Lord. But God is the strength of my heart. See, I, I got to be honest. When I think about Christians, the first word that comes to mind is not strength. I, I just, I, that's not the first thing I think about. And I think it ought to be. And yet sometimes for me, in my experience, it's not. It, 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 we hear these stories maybe when you grow up about strong men and strong women and, and a strong God. And, and sometimes when I take a survey of my life, I, to be honest, I don't feel strong. I don't feel like God is really the strength of my heart. I feel weak more often than not. I feel unprepared more often than not. I feel unqualified more often than not. I feel like this is a far too big of a task for me more often than not. It feels like life is kind of overwhelming more often than not. You, you know what I mean? Sometimes I don't feel strong. Sometimes more often I feel weak. And I think of my heart and I think about how fickle and fragile and, 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 and like how it sways with like the waves and the tide and how unsettled my heart is. And I don't feel strong. Do you feel strong? <laughs> I believe that God wants to give some of us some strength today though. That you might not feel strong, but I really believe God wants to give you some strength. Do you feel strong? Because if God wants to give you strength like you've never had before, it's not going to come from you. He's not going to say, get in the spiritual gym, lift some spiritual weights, and you're going to come out a spiritual giant. You're going to be stronger. You're going to be better. If you would try harder and if you would lift more spiritual, if you would read, if you would, no, 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 no. That's not the way that we get strong in the kingdom of God. He's not saying you be a better Christian, show your muscles, lift heavier weight, take more spiritual creatine, and you're going to be a spiritual monster. That's not what the scriptures say. 
That's not what he's trying to teach us here. He's not saying that that's the way that we're strong in the kingdom of God. And it's interesting because this moment, this but God happens once you've reached the end of yourself, not in the middle of yourself. Because when we think but God and how we've almost taught a little bit is that what happens when God intervenes? What happens when it's about to get worse, but God steps in? And I'm thankful for times in my life when I knew it was about to get worse and God stepped in. But this is the point where he says, my flesh and my heart have already failed. And so this isn't God intervening. This is God rescuing. That my flesh and my heart have failed already and now God is stepping in and he's picking me up out of it. He's rescuing me out of it. Now here's the question. Why does God do that? Why does God sometimes let us get to the end of ourselves instead of stopping us in the middle of ourselves? Why does God do that? Why did he let me, why did he let my flesh and my heart fail? I believe Eugene Peterson gives us a great answer. He's, one of his quotes in his book, he says, sometimes you have to be totally dissatisfied with the world before you can be totally satisfied with God. Sometimes God knows you better than you know you, and you need to become totally dissatisfied with the world before you will become totally satisfied with God. God has always been strong enough for you, but if you're always strong enough for yourself, then he doesn't have to be. And so if you're strong and if you got it, and if it's your strength, then God doesn't have to be strong enough for you. Listen, he won't compete for lordship in your life. He is either Lord or he's not Lord. Do you feel strong? He's not going to compete for the space in your life where you're trying to figure out, oh, am I strong enough in this area or am I not strong enough in this area? A way for us to experience God's strength is we need to quit treating God like we treat people. What do I mean by that? I got this. No, I got this. Man, you good, mom? Good. I'm good. I'm good. I don't need, bro. You need help? No, I'm good, bro. Don't worry about me. Don't worry about me. I got this, bro. Like, I don't need you. I don't need you. Like, I'm good. I don't need you. I'm good. I got this. Don't worry about me. Don't worry about me. And we're so scared of that four letter bad word, H E L P. We're terrified of that word. We don't ask people for help and we start to treat God like we treat people. So we don't ask God for help. You start to look at people. You say, man, I'm good. I'm good. I'm good. I don't need you. And all of a sudden you start looking at God. I'm good. I'm good. I'm good. I don't need you. So you start to look at people, man, I'm good. I got this. Don't worry about me. You look at God. I'm good. I got this. Don't worry about me. You, and all of a sudden we start to treat God like we treat people because we're so terrified to ask for help. Why? Because strength we think in our culture is I don't need help. But let me tell you something. Weakness in the kingdom of God is not weakness. Strength is. That's what we've talked about. Weakness in the kingdom of God is not a weakness. Strength is a weakness. Because if you are strong enough, then he doesn't have to be. He's not going to compete for lordship of your life. He's not going to say, well, do you want to save yourself this time or should I save you? No, if you want to save yourself, he's going to let you save yourself. But if you want him to help you, he's going to help you. If you want him to save you, he's going to save you. Because why? Sometimes 
God uses the weak things of the world to shame the strong. And sometimes I need help. So sometimes I'm going to boast all the more gladly in my weakness so that Christ's power may rest on me. Don't fight your weakness with strength. Fight your weakness with surrender. Because weakness is not weakness in the kingdom of God. Strength is. Do you feel yourself getting stronger? You feel yourself getting stronger? You see, the strength of your heart comes from your cry for help. The strength of your heart, where your strength truly comes from, his strength comes from your ability to say help, comes from your ability to come to the end of yourself because I might not be good enough, but I know that he is good enough for me. I know that he makes me strong. I know that I can rely on him. Do you know the word that the psalmist uses for strength in this chapter is actually the word sur. And it actually is more closely translated in the rest of the Psalms to the word rock. That's, that's really what the word means. And it says the strength of my heart. But really, when you translate this word in the rest of the Psalms, it really means the rock of my heart. What does that mean for you? It means that it is secure that it is firm, that he is powerful, that he is unmoving, that he will never change, that he is immovable, that he is steady, that you can rely on him. Do you feel yourself getting stronger? Because the sooner that you realize how shaky your heart is, the sooner that you're going to realize how steady that his heart is. And you, when you stand on the steadiness of his heart, you'll realize that I don't need to be strong because he is strong for me. He is enough for me. And it might be some time, it might be time for us, for some of us to forsake our own strength so that we can experience his strength. Because if you are always strong enough, he doesn't have to be. And if I was left to my best intentions, I would be ruined. Why? Because I'm not strong enough. And my calling is bigger than me. But guess what? If God has called you to a calling, he's not calling you to fulfill it in your strength. He's asking you to fulfill it in his strength. God just doesn't give you part of himself as strength. It says that God... God is the strength of my heart. Not an aspect of God, but God is the strength of my heart. Do you feel yourself getting stronger? That God is the strength of my heart. Do you feel yourself getting stronger? God is the strength of your heart, not an aspect of God. This means that the God of the universe is the strength of your heart. The God who delivered nations with plagues is the strength of your heart. The God who separated oceans with staffs is the strength of your heart. The God who walked on water is the strength of your heart. The God who tore down walls with shouts is the strength of your heart. The God who rained down fire from heaven is the strength of your heart. The God who uses the earth as his footstool is the strength of your heart. The God who delivered three Huber boys from furnaces with just a little bit of faith is the strength of your heart. The God who calmed storms with words and who created universes with his breath breath is the strength of your heart. The God who defeated death by dying is the strength of your heart. The God who defeated sin once and for all is the strength of your heart. The God who has all authority in heaven and on earth is the everlasting one is the strength of your heart. Did you know that God is the strength of your heart? Do you feel yourself getting stronger? That 
God is the strength of your heart. Not an aspect of God, but God himself. And this happens once we've come into the sanctuary. Why? Because that's where God is. You know where God is right now? In the sanctuary. And you know where, this, where Asaph got his strength? In the sanctuary. Once I came into the sanctuary of the Lord, I realized that my flesh and my heart may fail. But God is the strength of my heart. Do you feel the strength? Do you know that you're strong? Do you know where your strength comes from? Because your flesh and your heart may fail, but God is the strength of your heart. And he says, not just that he's the strength of your heart, but that he's my portion. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. My portion. You see, you don't decide how much of God that you get. God decides how much of God you get. You, you don't decide how much of God that God gives you. God decides how much of God that God gives you. And God says that you, you, what you get is a portion, and that portion is me. If something is my portion, that means that something else isn't my portion. If I get one thing, that means that I don't get another. And God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Numbers chapter 18, verse 20, I believe, illustrates this very clearly for us as I close. This is the Lord speaking to Aaron. And the Israelites are about to come into the promised land. And as they're about to come into the promised land, the Lord speaks and it says this in Numbers 18, 20. And the Lord said to Aaron, you shall have no inheritance in their land. And neither shall you have any portion among them. I am your portion. And your inheritance among the people of Israel. Can you imagine being a Levite, Aaron, he's the one who now the priesthood came through. Being Aaron at this point where you have experienced so much of God's goodness and all of your descendants and God speaks to you after you've been hearing about this promised land flowing with milk and honey for generations and for years and God brought you out of Egypt through the wilderness to get into Canaan over the Jordan and now he's saying these words to you after you've heard about the promised land for so long and he says, this is the land that I have promised promised to you all of these things for you. It's going to be incredible. Everybody is talking about it. Everybody's excited about it. And then all of the sudden, God says, yeah, you know the promised land? The promised land, you get none of it. And I can only imagine being Aaron and being like, whoa, 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 whoa. You brought me out of Egypt. You brought me through the wilderness you brought us over here and we've been talking about the promised land for this long and then you're going to come to me now and you're going to say that I don't get anything? Then what was this for? Like I don't get any, I don't get to own anything here. 
And then the Lord follows it up. He says, no, yeah, you're right. You don't get anything of that. But you know what you do get? You get me. You might not get any of that, Aaron, Levites. But you get me. And Asaph, a Levite, from the descendant of Aaron, he... I can only imagine he remembers Numbers chapter 18, verse 20, as he writes this psalm and he says, my flesh and my heart may fail. I understand I'm not good enough. I'm going to come to an end. But God, you are the strength of my heart and you, God, are my portion forever. I'm just remembering the promise that you made to my fathers where you said you might not get that. But guess what you do get? You get me. That the Lord himself promises himself as a portion to you. And he says, I am giving you not land and not donkeys and not livestock and not things and not places. You can get that anytime. You could get that anywhere. Anybody could give you that. You could get that by yourself. But you know what you can't get by yourself? You can't get me. Because you don't decide how much of God that you get. God decides how much of God that you get. And God said that, guess what? The amount that you get, your portion as a follower, as a worshiper, as a priest. Peter calls you a royal priesthood. You, the priest, you get him. That's your portion. That's what you get. That's your inheritance. And you might not get all these other things. You might not be as successful as you want to be. You might not get the house that you dreamed that you would get. And you might not get the degree that you dreamed that you would have. And you might not have as much money as you wished that you would have. But guess what? You get him. And the question is, is that enough for you? Because if Jesus is not enough for you, I promise you, the whole world won't be. Is he enough for you? Will you be satisfied with just him? Or are you going to say, no, God, but I was hoping for that. And I was hoping for her. And I was hoping for this. And I was hoping I'd get there. He says, if you never get there, are you satisfied with me? Because if Jesus isn't enough for you, the whole world won't be. Our portion is unchanging and our portion is secure. Because God is our portion. And God said, I'll give up everything to have you in the person of Jesus. I will give up heaven so that I might get earth and sinners. And we can respond to him by saying, God, if you give up everything to have me, then I don't need anything besides you. Give me Jesus. You can have everything else. You can take everything else. You can have the whole world. But if I get Jesus, then that's enough for me. Lord Jesus, we're saying you're enough for us. Truthfully and honestly, you are enough for us. And God, we're saying you, you decide how much of you that we get, not us. And we will take however much of you that you graciously pour out on us. We're saying that, Lord, you are enough. And we are satisfied with the king. And we're satisfied in you, ultimately. 
And God, we're asking right now, would you help our souls to realize that there is nothing else that will truly satisfy, that you are living water and that you are the hope, that you are the, 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 the thing, the solid rock on which we stand. And God, we are satisfied eternally in you. There's a moment that I want us to have right now in response to him. And I'm not sure what it looks like for you, but I want us to take the next couple minutes, just two or three, to worship him and to say, God, you are enough. I don't need anything else. You can have the world, but Lord, give me Jesus. When I am alone, oh, when I I am alone. Give me Jesus. Give me Jesus. Give me Jesus. You can have all this world. desire in heaven but you to sit in your temple and to gaze upon your beauty better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of God than dwell in the tents of wickedness